Welcome to a new season of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. The story of this season begins with last season. Jean Seberg was originally meant to be one of the subjects of our last series of episodes, Dead Blondes. In the middle of writing and researching that series, I decided that Barbara Loden, who I hadn't originally planned on including, was a better fit for that series than Seberg. And then, suddenly, I got an idea. Why not do a whole series comparing and contrasting Seberg, an American girl who worked at the tail end of the Hollywood studio system, then went to France, married a French guy, starred in a movie for Jean-Luc Godard, then came back to the U.S. and became involved with the Black Panthers and other controversial political causes, with another actress of her era who did all of those same things, Jane Fonda. I don't know if I'm unhappy because I'm not free or if I'm not free because I'm unhappy. I say our responsibility as Americans is to be concerned about what our country is doing. The suicide of Jean Seberg, the young actress from Iowa. Are you ready to do the workout? In this series, we will go back and forth between stories about Jane and stories about Jean, comparing and contrasting their similarities and their differences. We'll begin at the beginning and end in the early 1980s, by which point Seberg will be dead and Jane Fonda will be on her fifth or sixth reinvention. Today, a new generation is discovering Fonda through her Netflix sitcom, Grace and Frankie, in which she plays a 70-something former CEO and recent divorcee who, when her husband leaves her to marry his male business partner, has to struggle through the indignity of having lost control of the narrative of her own life. It's an interesting late-in-life act for an actress who has been famous for over 50 years, who for many years lived and worked in the shadow of her famous, highly acclaimed actor father Henry Fonda, and who once said, My life did not provide me with a narrative, so I had to make one up. Jane Fonda and Jean Seberg were born within a year of one another. Jean Seberg died of 
unnatural causes in 1979. And Fonda, of course, is so alive at age 79 that it's impossible to imagine her going through even a natural age-related decline. Jean Seberg became famous before Fonda committed to acting. Seberg adopted Paris as her home first, she worked with Godard first, and became deeply involved in radical politics first. But unlike many of the women in our previous series, her legacy was not exactly transformed into legend by her untimely death. Today, if people born in the 80s or later know Seberg at all, it's usually because of Breathless, the film that, for many people, embodies the French New Wave, in which Seberg played Jean-Paul Belmondo's American lover. Today, Seberg is a star on Pinterest and Tumblr, where images of her with her blonde boy's haircut and tight t-shirts are shared as fashion inspiration, alongside equally girl-friendly pinups like Anna Karina and Audrey Hepburn. Vintage photos of Jane Fonda do not seem to be as iconic, although some of them, particularly from the modeling she did for magazines like Vogue in the early 1960s, probably should be. Instead, in today's politically polarized environment, Jane Fonda is largely remembered, and in some circles vilified, for her anti-war activism during the Vietnam War, in which she took stances that were so critical of the U.S. military and empathetic towards the Vietnamese people that she was branded as a traitor. Fonda has won two Best Actress Oscars, which puts her in the rarefied space of Ingrid Bergman, Betty Davis, Meryl Streep, and Elizabeth Taylor. And yet, her movies and her performances in them are not talked about nearly as much as her off-screen life. To this day, YouTube is full of searingly angry and frighteningly misogynistic homemade content directed at Fonda's actions during the Vietnam War. I saw one video recently that summed many of them up for me. It showed an image of Fonda wearing a barely-there costume from her movie Barbarella, with the on-screen caption, This is what we wanted. It was followed by an image of Jane's mugshot, with the caption, This is what we got. At the same time that Fonda was being branded Hanoi Jane, Jean Seberg was considered by the FBI to be one of the most dangerous people in the United States. And this was when she was living in Beverly Hills and appearing in square Hollywood fare like Paint Your Wagon and Airport. In both Fonda and Seberg, you have women whose on-screen work was instrumental in the cultural transition from the studio system era of the mid-century to the new Hollywood, and then to the mega-blockbuster era of the 1980s. That significance is impossible to deny, even as that on-screen work has taken a backseat in the cultural memory to superficial ideas about who these women were or are. So join us won't you, for the first chapter of Jean and Jane. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. 
On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Her full birth name was Lady Jane Seymour Fonda. When her mother Frances went into labor on December 21st, 1937, her father Henry flew to the New York birth from the Hollywood set of Jezebel, in which he was starring opposite Betty Davis. Frances's first husband had been a violent alcoholic. In fact, he had died when, during an attempt at drying out, he fell off the wagon and fell into a sanatorium swimming pool, too drunk to swim. Francis had met Fonda on a trip to London, where he was shooting a film at the time. They were married about a year and a quarter after Francis's first husband's death. Jane was born another 15 months later. Two years after that, Henry Fonda had his first signature role as Abraham Lincoln in Young Mr. Lincoln. Around this time, he begrudgingly signed a seven-year contract with Fox. He later regretted it, because he didn't care about movie stardom, per se. He wanted to do theater. Because she already had a daughter from her first marriage, Frances Fonda had wanted a son. Jane would eventually become aware of this, and it made her feel unwanted. When her brother Peter came along a few years later... Jane felt that her paranoia had been justified. Frances devoted all of her maternal affection to the boy. It was also after that third experience of childbirth that Frances began suffering from the mental health problems that would plague her for the rest of her life. Raised by a succession of nannies, at some point in her childhood, Jane was sexually abused. In her book, My Life So Far, she recalled an incident in which the current nanny brought her boyfriend into the bathroom while Jane was taking a bath. They asked Jane to get out of the tub. Jane couldn't remember what happened next, which is not unusual for child victims of sexual assault, especially when they are unable to tell anybody what happened until years later. But after that incident... Jane would suffer from recurring nightmares about violent sexuality. And these night terrors got worse after the advent of World War II. She began sleepwalking and would move furniture around in her sleep. In 1978, Barbara Walters asked Jane about her childhood. Jane's first instinct was to talk about her father's influence. When you think of your childhood, was it happy? Um, yeah, a lot of it was happy, sure. But see, we grew up, um, Dad was always a renegade. He was never into the Hollywood scene. We grew up on a sort of a farm, and it was very into animals. Animals and compost pits and tractors and being a, being a guy. I was a tomboy. Later in that interview, Walters would press Jane to talk about Francis and how her mother's problems impacted Jane's childhood. I've discovered lately, since I started having girlfriends, that um, lady woman friends, that there's a lot of women whose mothers um, spent a lot of time locked in rooms crying, a lot of time, I mean, they'd be diagnosed as 
mental depressant people, uh, people with deep psychological problems that got turned inward. And most of the time, from what I can tell, these are women, as my mother was, who are creative, very bright, with a tremendous amount of energy, who were never given an outlet. They were never, all of, it was never allowed to, um, to be harnessed in a, in a constructive, positive way. You know, there's, uh, there was no woman's movement. There was no, uh, there was nothing out there to say to them, hey, you know, it's not just your problem as an individual woman. This is a social phenomena. And uh, consequently, there are solutions to it. Aside from your killing yourself or locking yourself in a room, um, but when, you know, if you're told that what you've got mainly going for you, since the intelligence is kind of shuttled off to one side, is your looks and your youth, and in some instances your money, if any of, you know, most of those things are transitory, and when mm -hmm. they go, what, where's the support structure? Where, where, do you, where do you stand after that goes? The Fonda family was very close to Mr. and Mrs. Leland Hayward. Hayward was a super agent who, after a long affair with Katherine Hepburn, got tired of waiting for Kate to decide whether or not to marry him, and instead eloped with actress Margaret Sullivan. Sullivan had previously been married to Henry Fonda. Though the marriage only lasted a few months, some speculated that Henry had never gotten over Margaret. His ex-wife was not the only threat to his marriage to Frances. In 1941, when Jane was three years old, her father had an affair with Barbara Stanwyck, his co-star in The Lady Eve. Fonda would tell his fourth wife that Stanwyck was, quote, the best fuck I ever had because she was gay. No inhibitions. She'd do anything to please a man. Henry Fonda enlisted in the Navy in 1942 when he was 37 years old. This seems to have been, in part, an effort to get away from a marriage that wasn't working. One big problem in the marriage was Frances's depression, which her husband didn't know how to deal with and didn't want to. Later, he'd say, it was just a bore to have a wife who wasn't always well. Another problem was Fonda's infidelities. He wouldn't communicate with his wife what he wanted sexually, preferring to explore his preferences outside of the home. Frances accordingly became obsessed with maintaining or restoring her looks and her youth. She'd stare at herself in the mirror for hours, smoking, analyzing her faults. One afternoon, Jane came into her mother's bedroom and found her like this. And when Frances caught Jane's reflection in the mirror, she sighed. Lady, if I gain any extra weight, I'm going to cut it off with a knife. This was how Jane became acutely aware that a woman should not be caught carrying an extra ounce. As a very young girl, Jane learned from her mother that a grown woman, as Jane would later write, has to answer her husband's emotional and physical needs. She has to twist herself into a pretzel, not let him see who she really is. She should let her more fulsome self express itself outside the relationship, in her house, her work, with girlfriends, affairs, whatever. Jane's mom terrified and angered Jane. 
As a little girl, she idolized her father. Tomboyish, at one point she cut off her pigtails herself in the hopes that it would actually turn her into a boy, and then Henry would be forced to relate to her. As it was, all she wanted was Henry Fonda's praise, and he couldn't, or wouldn't, give it to her. His wife felt equally starved for attention. He never loved her, Jane would say of her father. I always knew that. When Jane was nine, her mother secretly had a hysterectomy. When Frances returned from the hospital, she decided to go all out to try to reignite her marriage, giving herself makeover after makeover in the hope that Henry would notice and fall in love with her again. That year, Henry completed his commitment to Fox, told his agent he wanted to do theater, and then signed his support of the Hollywood 10 versus the House on American Activities Committee. After that, Henry Fonda wouldn't have a starring role in a Hollywood movie for seven years, between Fort Apache in 1948 and Mr. Roberts in 1955. Fonda's new focus on Broadway necessitated a family move from the ranch they had lived on in the Santa Monica Mountains, called Tiger Tail, to New York. Their beloved bucolic estate was sold, and the family moved to a rental house in Greenwich, Connecticut. For the three members of the Fonda family who were already feeling left behind by Henry's career, the move was further destabilizing. There, on the porch of their new, impersonal borrowed mansion, Peter and Jane's mother would use ether and mason jars to kill and trap butterflies. That is, when she was home. She was often away, and Jane and Peter were not told exactly why. From the start, Henry wasn't around. He lived in a rental apartment in the city during the six days a week that he was performing on stage. Soon, he began an affair with Susan Blanchard, a 21-year-old blonde who took to hanging out at the theater Fonda was performing at because her half-brother worked there. A year later, Henry Fonda admitted the affair to Frances Fonda and told her he planned to divorce her. Frances Fonda informed Jane that her marriage was ending by telling her 10-year-old daughter that if anyone at school mentioned that her parents were getting divorced, Jane was to tell them that she already knew. Later, Frances showed Jane the scars that she had been left with from a recent kidney operation. Jane's mom had a disfiguring scar all around her middle, as if she had been cut in half. Then Frances lifted up her shirt to show her daughter a mangled nipple, which Jane would later learn was the result of a botched breast implant surgery. Jane connected her mother's scars to her father's decision to leave. I think it was around that time, maybe right there on that bed, that I vowed I would do whatever it took to be perfect so that a man would love me, Jane later wrote. Henry Fonda took his time actually filing for divorce, and Francis held out hope that he wouldn't, that when his affair fizzled out, he would come back to her. 
But this didn't happen, and Frances began to fall apart. By January 1950, she was really suffering, and she was sent to a psychiatric hospital in Massachusetts. There she tried, and failed, to kill herself after throwing her wedding ring out a window and then failing to find it. Her doctor called Henry and told him that he believed Frances was a danger to herself and belonged in a higher security facility. Fonda didn't like the sound of that, but he was outvoted, and Frances was transferred to a sanitarium. During this time, Jane and Peter lived in the family home with servants and their maternal grandmother, who refused to acknowledge that anything was wrong. Frances seemed to be improving, and one day in April, she came home for a visit. Jane was upstairs playing with Peter. Frances called to her daughter from the ground floor of the house. Jane! Jane! Jane? Jane didn't want to go downstairs to see her mother. She was tired of having a sick mom who was never around when Jane needed her. Why should she come running now that Frances had deigned to grace them with her presence? As Jane would later put it, she never wanted to talk to me that much before. Jane would not go downstairs. When Peter said they should go, Jane tried to physically stop him, but he struggled free and went to their mom. Frances was accompanied on this visit by two nurses who were not supposed to let her out of their sight. When it became apparent that Jane wouldn't see her, Frances managed to lose the nurses and escape into a bathroom. She emerged with a tiny china box, which she said she wanted to take back to the hospital with her as a memory of home. The nurses said it was fine. They did not open the box. Weeks later, back at the hospital, Frances took the china box into the toilet of her room and took out a small razor from the box and slit her throat, severing her jugular. She had left a note on her bed, asking whoever found it to not come into the bathroom. When somebody did finally enter the bathroom, she was already dead. That day at the house, when Frances had begged Jane to come downstairs, Jane never saw her after that. The hospital called Frances's mother, who called Henry in the city. He raced to the hospital. Jane's father and grandmother decided on the spot to have Frances's body cremated and buried and to not tell Jane and Peter the truth about what had happened. That afternoon, Henry Fonda told his kids that their mother had died of a heart attack. Peter cried. Jane couldn't. How weird, she thought. She didn't know why she couldn't cry. In order to protect the fiction that their mother had not killed herself, Jane and Peter were kept away from all newspapers and magazines. Jane found out the truth after about a month, when she sneaked a peek at an issue of Photoplay that had an article titled, Henry Fonda's Tragedy. Jane went home and asked her governess if her mother had indeed slit her own throat. The governess then told Jane the whole story. By the end of that year, Henry had married his mistress, Susan, who was just nine years older than Jane. 
Jane's father and the new woman of the house never discussed Francis with the kids. Now enrolled in boarding school, Jane began trying to connect with her father by sending him letters. When he would respond, he'd send back the original letter, its grammar corrected in red. Jane was something of a late bloomer. She didn't get her period until she was 16, and before that, after becoming fascinated with the story of Christine Jorgensen, a trans woman who had the first known sexual reassignment surgery in 1951, Jane wondered if she was a boy trapped in a female body. That same summer, she went to see The Wild One, starring Marlon Brando, with whom Jane immediately fell in girlish love. She and her girlfriends would drive around Hollywood hoping for a Brando sighting. Jane even developed a Brando impression, which was all mumbles and grunts. Back at boarding school, Jane was indoctrinated into a group of girls who would go out and buy tubs of ice cream or big bags of brownies, devour the treats in their dorm rooms, and then dash to the bathrooms to throw it all up. I loved to eat, Jane would say later, but I wanted to be wonderfully thin. In bulimia, she would find the disease and the addiction that would in no small part define the next 30 years of her life. Shortly after graduating high school, Jane made her theatrical debut, co-starring with her father in a production of Clifford Odets' The Country Girl, designed as a benefit for the Omaha Playhouse. That fall, she enrolled at Vassar. She wasn't really interested in school. She liked acting, but she wasn't sure she had any talent. Most of her girlfriends went to college merely to kill time until they got married. Jane decided to major in having fun. She was young, beautiful, rich, and extremely popular. There were stories of her sunbathing nude on the roof of her dorm, of her juggling three dates in a single night. In the summer of 1956, Jane apprenticed at the Dennis Playhouse on Cape Cod. Her whole family was vacationing nearby, and Henry Fonda agreed to appear opposite Jane in one of the plays. When the production was successful, Jane, basking in the glow of collaborating with her father, thought seriously about acting for the first time. By this time, Henry had left his third wife and had taken up with a 23-year-old Italian countess who would become his fourth wife. In her second year at Vassar, Jane drank a lot, became addicted to speedy diet pills, and flunked her exams. She hoped the school would expel her, or at least punish her, but knowing who her father was, they gave her chance after chance. Eventually, she just dropped out of school entirely and went to Paris, ostensibly to study painting. Although when Henry found out Jane had been seeing a man in his 30s, whom she had allowed to photograph her in the nude, Jane's expatriate days were cut short. She would be back. Throughout these youthful wanderings, Jane was hesitant to commit to acting. Despite her positive experiences working on the stage with her father, she was terrified to follow in his footsteps. She was sure that she'd be compared to him, and she feared that in that contest, there was no way she'd come out on top. After her semester in Paris, Jane returned to New York, where she lived in her father's brownstone and slept all day. She took art classes at the Art Students League. She started modeling, which came easy. 
by July 1959, Vogue decided to run an image of Jane in a gold dress, taken by Irving Penn, on their cover. The fashion magazines loved Jane's stick-thin body, which she maintained through dexedrine, daily ballet classes, chain-smoking, and bulimia. At 5'7", she weighed 110 pounds. She had turned 21 and had received a trust fund set up for her by her mother. She was gorgeous and rich and could have done anything she wanted. She just had to admit to herself what it was that she really wanted to do. And then Jane spent the summer with her family in a house in Malibu that they had rented from Tyrone Power, a little ways down the beach from where acting guru Lee Strasberg was staying. Jane spent much of her summer hanging out with Jill Robinson, who was the daughter of MGM mogul Dory Sherry. Henry Fonda was feeling the changes to the studio system, the end of the reign of visionary moguls, like Sherry, who had set the agenda for a studio. All the power was shifting to talent agencies and TV. The stars who had been signed to the big studios under the old star system were rebelling or insisting on some measure of control over their own careers. Susan Strasberg, Lee's daughter, took Jane that summer to visit the set of Some Like It Hot. Even Marilyn Monroe, who was literally unable to say a single line without seeking approval from Paula Strasberg, had started her own production company. When Jane met people who were in any way associated with movies or theater, they had a tendency to ask her why she wasn't trying to act. She had the looks, and she also had a presence that was undeniable. It was there in the Vogue photos. It was there in her brief time on stage. It was there when she walked into a room. What was it that she was fighting? Finally, she decided to ask Lee Strasberg for advice. When everyone else asked her if she wanted to act, she had hemmed and hawed, made excuses. When Lee Strasberg asked her if she wanted to act, she said, unequivocally, yes. And Strasberg told her that he'd accept her into his acting classes that fall in New York. Jean Seberg was born on November 13, 1938, in Marshalltown, Iowa, the archetypical, boring, Midwestern American town. Growing up there, Jean observed that the adults around her were, quote, grim, kind, dried-up people who were afraid to open up. Her mother was a schoolteacher turned homemaker, and her father owned a local pharmacy. Jean was the second of four kids. They were Lutherans, weekly churchgoers, nightly grace-sayers. Their spirituality was not about transcendence. Jean was frightened by the Sunday sermons about sin, which hammered home the mortal consequences of deviation from the righteous path. The presiding ambition over life in Marshalltown and in the Seaberg house was to be normal, to fit in. But from an early age, Jean was unusual. For one thing, she was unusually sensitive, particularly to the plight of living creatures. She'd bring home stray dogs and cats, and even protested when her mom would use force to deal with flies in the kitchen. She often retreated into books, 
She loved poetry, including the rather mature verses of Edna St. Vincent Millay. One quote-unquote normal pastime of Jean's was going to the movies. When she was 12, the local movie house showed The Men, starring Marlon Brando as a wheelchair-bound war veteran. Seberg would acknowledge later that she walked out of the theater shaken. Marlon Brando didn't behave on screen like the slick Hollywood movie stars she was used to seeing, but his performance had made her understand something that no other movie star previously had about the potential power of acting to convey emotion. From then on, Brando was her idol, and acting was her ambition. She told all of Marshalltown that someday she would be very famous. This wasn't taken seriously, but at least it seemed like a harmless thing for a young teenager to dream about. Her friends and family were more concerned when 14-year-old Jean sent away through the mail to join the Des Moines chapter of the NAACP. Marshalltown was completely segregated, and the majority white community hardly acknowledged the small number of black families that lived on the outskirts of town. At her high school, Seberg had watched the school's sole black athlete at dances, where nobody seemed to care when he danced with white girls, even when he'd hold the girls, as Jean put it, aggressively close. And then one day, that boy asked if he could walk a white girl home, and he got the shit beaten out of him by some of his white classmates. At school, Jean threw herself into the drama department. By now, like many other teenagers of the 1950s, she had moved on from Marlon Brando to James Dean, who she fell in love with watching him on screen in East of Eden, a film she returned to see seven times at the Marshalltown Theater. When Dean died, 16-year-old Seberg felt an even stronger sense of attachment to the actor. She started telling her school friends that she, too, was destined to die young. She predicted she wouldn't live beyond 40. If adulthood meant replicating the lives she saw modeled by adults in Marshalltown, she wasn't interested. As she'd say later, I'd look at all the people in this town who just get up in the morning and go to work and go home to bed, and I'd think, if that's all there is to life, I don't want it. In January of her senior year, Jean was cast in the lead part of her school's production of Sabrina Fair, the play which two years earlier had been filmed as Sabrina, starring Audrey Hepburn. Seberg was a triumph in the show, and after graduation, her drama teacher secured for Jean a spot in Summerstock on Cape Cod. Her family was vehemently against this. They felt she had had her fun and now it was time to get serious, to go to the local state college where her older sister was already enrolled and where she could safely wait out the rest of her adolescence until she found someone decent to marry. But to Jean, Summerstock was serious. In fact, she saw it as her only opportunity to pursue a serious work life. Because of all the sexual repression of my Midwestern upbringing, Jean would say later, I would have quickly gotten involved with some guy at university. And because of my upbringing, I would have married him. It would have been a disaster, and we would have broken up. I would have gone to New York to try to fulfill my ambition to be an actress, and probably married a second time to an actor or director. 
And that would have been it. She promised her father she'd try college when she returned to Iowa in the fall. And he bought it and let her go. In Summerstock, Jean was cast in the Kim Novak role in Picnic, and she promptly fell in love with John Maddox, the actor cast in the William Holden role. Together they planned to travel to New York at the end of the summer to try their luck in the place where acting was being revolutionized thanks to the actor studio and other schools proselytizing versions of the method. Before the summer ended, a trailer in nationwide movie theaters announced that director Otto Preminger was hosting an open call for a new actress to star in his new film of the Joan of Arc story, based on George Bernard Shaw's play, Saint Joan. Preminger had established himself in Hollywood after the war, directing noir films and women's pictures like Laura, Daisy Kenyon, and Forever Amber. In the 1950s, with a few hits under his belt, he began systematically challenging the Hollywood establishment, with movies like The Moon is Blue, a sex comedy which delivered a major blow to the production code censorship system when they denied it their seal of approval, and the studio released it anyway, and it became a huge hit. Preminger continued to challenge the acceptable content of Hollywood movies with Carmen Jones, for which Dorothy Dandridge became the first black woman nominated for Best Actress, and The Man with a Golden Arm, starring Frank Sinatra as a heroin addict. Thanks to the controversies sparked by these movies and their genuinely excellent performances at the box office, a new Otto Preminger movie was all but guaranteed to be a big deal one of the highest-profile Hollywood movies of the year. Jean's high school acting teacher back in Iowa urged her to enter Preminger's talent contest. Jean figured the contest was just a gimmick, and furthermore, she believed she wasn't right for the part. But if she got a chance to meet a big Hollywood director, maybe then her father would take her quest to act more seriously. Jean submitted an application, and she made the first cut. 18,000 applicants were dwindled down to 3,000, who were invited to their nearest major city to audition for Preminger himself. Jean's father told her he would only drive her to the audition in Chicago if she enrolled in college first. Jean did as she was told, but she would never attend classes. Her Chicago audition was such a success that Otto Preminger himself told Mr. Seberg that his daughter needed to be available for a final screen test in New York and that her education could wait. Preminger ordered Jean to come to New York two weeks before the screen test so that they could prepare together. In the interim, Jean memorized the entirety of Shaw's play. When she arrived in New York and started working with Preminger, he was furious at her. She had overprepared, and in his mind, in so doing, she had destroyed what he had found interesting about her. Jean should have taken this as an early warning of what working with Preminger would be like. She didn't. Preminger's treatment of Jean may have been a psychological tactic designed to beat her down emotionally. In fact, Jean was one of just three actresses considered finalists. In the middle of her screen test, Preminger would ask Jean if she'd be willing to have her hair chopped off before the test resumed. Jean enthusiastically submitted to the hairdresser's shears. Then came more tests. Preminger used everything in his bag of tricks to break Jean's spirit. As Jean recalled, 
He called me a ham and a phony, and I was so upset I didn't know what to do. But then I realized he was just trying to see if I could take it. At one point, when it seemed like her energy was flagging, Preminger, with a touch of satisfaction, asked her if she had the guts to keep going. She responded, I'll rehearse until you drop dead. By the end of the afternoon, Jean was sobbing uncontrollably. She got the part. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can find us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod. And we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show or rated and reviewed it in iTunes, please do it. It helps other people find it. You can also find us on any other podcatcher of your choice. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.